You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Before we get to the actual start of the episode, we wanted to let you know that we're making a big change to the membership program. Yep. Uh, You see, when we first started the Strawfoot Brigade, we put together a WordPress website ourselves and found a membership plugin to use with it. And although both have performed yeoman duty up to this point, they're beginning to show the strain as the number of members continues to climb steadily. A growing membership is a good problem to have, obviously, and we think we've hit upon the best solution to address that challenge as we continue to move forward with the podcast. What we've decided to do is move all of the members members episodes to a proven membership platform named Patreon that is already used by thousands of other creators, including many of our fellow podcasters. Our page there is all set up and ready to go, so you can check it out right now at www.patreon.com backslash Civil War Podcast. And we'll put that link up on the website and also on Facebook and Twitter. Although we think this is the best long-term solution for us as we move forward with the show, we realize that there may be some short-term disruption since, unfortunately, there's no way to simply transfer all of our current members to Patreon. That means current members will have to close out their existing membership through PayPal and then open up a new membership through Patreon. To help ease this process for current members, we're going to plan for a transition period of about six weeks, during which we'll leave all of the membership episodes up on the website. But after May 10th, 2019, the only way to access membership material will be through Patreon. So, there you go. To all the past, present, and future members of the Strawfoot Brigade, we just want to say thank you for your support of the podcast. Please know that Tracy and I are still as excited as ever about continuing to tell the story of the Civil War and Reconstruction. We hope we can continue to count on your support as we keep telling that story one episode at a time. All right, now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 274 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. 
Welcome to the podcast. As promised, now that we've finished up the Chancellorsville story arc, we're going to have an episode where we look at the death of Stonewall Jackson. To begin our discussion, it's probably best that we start by returning to the night of Saturday, May 2nd, 1863. A smashing Confederate flank attack that evening had brought the soldiers of the 18th North Carolina into the woods west of Chancellorsville. Earlier, their comrades in the 2nd Corps of the Army of Northern Virginia had rolled up the right flank of the Union line and routed the enemy 11th Corps. But disruptions in the attacking formations, confusion, and the onset of darkness had stalled the rebel onslaught. However, 2nd Corps Commander Lieutenant General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson was determined to exploit the advantage just won by his troops, and he would do that by continuing the assault with the night attack. To that end, Jackson brought forward his reserve division under Major General A.P. Hill. Brigadier General James Lane's brigade was the vanguard of Hill's command as it made its way east on the Plank Road. As they drew close to the Federal lines, Lane's regiments, including the 18th North Carolina, moved into the woods and deployed on both sides of the road, that is, to the north and to the south of the Plank Road. The 18th lay north of and next to the road. Accompanied by aides and couriers, Stonewall Jackson proceeded east on the road toward Lane's troops. As they rode, Private David Kyle of the 9th Virginia Cavalry overtook the party and handed a message to Jackson. When the general learned that Kyle had lived nearby before the war, Stonewall kept him with the group as a guide. The party then turned off the main road and onto a byway known as the Mountain Road, which was really just a narrow corridor through the woods, north of and parallel to the Plank Road. Meanwhile, behind Jackson, A.P. Hill was also coming up the Plank Road to conduct his own reconnaissance of the front. Hill's party, like Stonewall's, passed through Lane's line. But without the benefit of a local guide, Hill's group kept moving east down the Plank Road rather than turn off onto the mountain road. Both Jackson's and Hill's parties passed beyond Lane's main line and rode toward the Rebel skirmish line and the Federal's position farther east. Driven by a desire to personally reconnoiter the situation to his front, Stonewall Jackson ignored the obvious dangers of riding in the darkness out beyond friendly lines. With Kyle by his side, he continued east on the mountain road until he was a stone's throw behind the rebel skirmish line. There, he halted for a few minutes and listened for sounds of enemy activity before turning Little Sorrel around and heading back west toward Lane's main line. At about 9.30, the members of the 18th North Carolina suddenly heard, from their right, south of the Plank Road, a flurry of scattered shots, followed by volleys of musketry that spread up the brigade line toward them. The men of the 18th joined in the shooting. To their front came the sound of horses in the woods, and Major John Barry, who was convinced it was Yankee cavalry out there in the darkness, shouted for his men to continue firing. Stonewall Jackson reeled in his saddle, struck by three musket balls. 
A terrified little sorrel carried the wounded general a short distance through the woods until aides halted the horse. They lowered Jackson to the ground and examined the wounds. One ball had hit him in the palm of his right hand, while the other two tore into his left arm near the shoulder and on the forearm. Several hundred musket balls and rifled bullets were most likely fired from the lines of the 18th North Carolina out into the darkness to the regiment's front. Most of the, probably, several dozen projectiles that shot out toward Stonewall Jackson's precise location would have buried themselves in, or were deflected by, the dense growth of trees and underbrush that crowded the fire zone. The five that tore into human flesh, though, were fiendishly effective. Signal Corps enlisted man William Cunliffe was killed, and courier Joshua Johns, a private in the 39th Virginia Cavalry, was wounded. John's horse carried him into enemy lines, where he was captured. Six of Jackson's eight escorts were untouched by the musketry. The relatively immense target that Stonewall sat astride, Little Sorrel, remained unhit. But as though vectored specially toward the general, three musket balls ignored staggering odds, dodging every impediment and missing every other target, and mortally wounded Stonewall Jackson. By the time A.P. Hill reached Stonewall Jackson, aides had lifted their stricken chief from his horse and began initial treatment of his wounds. The general suffered from four injuries, three bullet wounds and a scratched face. The scratches were ugly but inconsequential in the struggle for life that lay ahead. They had occurred when a terrified little sorrel had wheeled abruptly away from the muzzle blast along the 18th North Carolina's front and then carried Jackson under the limb of an oak tree on the south side of the mountain road. Jackson somehow caught the bridle in his injured right hand, which was mangled by a bullet, and by agonizing exertion turned the animal back toward Confederate lines. He was unable to stop Little Sorrel completely, though, until aides brought the horse to a halt. One of the three bullets that hit Stonewall tore through the inside of his right palm. When that arm was evidently raised, either in instinctive reaction to the incoming fire or to shield his face from branches. A rebel soldier in Pender's brigade found the general's gloves the next day with T.J. Jackson, Virginia, printed neatly on the wrist of each, and eventually they were brought to Jackson's widow. The right glove showed an entry wound just above the base of the thumb. The ball broke two fingers and lodged just under the skin on the back of Stonewall's hand. Mary Anna Jackson kept both the gloves and the ball as heartbreaking mementos of her late husband's fate. The other two bullets did far more damage. Both hit Jackson's left arm. Each caused enough destruction to justify amputation according to the surgical practices of that day. It seems the forearm wound, though, actually escaped attention for hours because a more serious wound near the shoulder made the lower extremity numb. 
Jackson's surgeon, Major Hunter McGuire, who performed the amputation, described the lower ball as, quote, having entered the outside of the forearm, an inch below the elbow, and came out upon the opposite side, just above the wrist, end quote. And the raincoat that was Stonewall's outer garment shows a bullet hole low on the forearm, apparently the lower bullet's entry point. Jackson suffered most from the bullet that shattered his upper left arm. McGuire wrote that it struck, quote, about three inches below the shoulder joint, the ball dividing the main artery and fracturing the bone. In fact, the bullet-torn raincoat bears a hole precisely three inches down the sleeve, and Jackson's arm was certainly fractured. But McGuire was probably mistaken in his presumption that the ball severed the main artery, since there was evidently little initial blood loss. As Stonewall was carried to the rear, however, he fell twice to the ground, causing severe arterial bleeding. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Signal Corps officer Captain Richard Wilborn and A.P. Hill performed most the first day that Jackson received while still beyond the Confederate front line. Between them, Hill and Wilborn ripped open the layers of sleeves concealing Stonewall's shoulder wound, pulled off his gloves, and applied primitive bandages. They tied handkerchiefs above and below the upper arm wound and fashioned a third handkerchief into a sling. Although Stonewall had, of course, bled considerably from his torn and broken arm, it seems likely that the artery hadn't yet ruptured. Wilborn wrote not long after the event that the wound, quote, had apparently ceased bleeding, and we indulged the hope that the artery was not cut. When Surgeon Benjamin Wright of the 55th Virginia reached the scene and examined Jackson's arm, he found that the primitive bandaging had already been done and noted that, quote, the hemorrhage had been slight. 
More than a dozen officers and men tended to Stonewall Jackson as he was carried toward friendly lines and then to the rear in agonizing stages. The journey proceeded by mixed means, all of them made more difficult by the darkness and by fierce Federal artillery fire lashing the area. Two painful falls along the way were almost certainly the fatal events in this sequence and likely ensured that Jackson's wounding would eventually prove mortal. Jackson fell from the litter a first time when an enlisted man bearing the front left corner was cut down with serious wounds to both arms. Private John James Johnson, Company H, 22nd Virginia Battalion, lost his right arm at the shoulder socket, and his left arm was, quote, so completely paralyzed as to be useless. Contemporary accounts report that the litter bearers had been carrying Jackson at shoulder height, so he was dropped at least several feet. Everyone agreed that this fall caused the general incredible suffering. Credible reports indicate that the fall spun Jackson in an arc so that he landed on his left side, inflicting excruciating pain as the already injured limb hit the ground. A second fall from the litter ensured the final destruction of Jackson's left arm. Three enlisted men and one officer were carrying the general through the woods when one of the soldiers tripped on something in the darkness and fell. Jackson was again dropped on his broken arm. The solid evidence from multiple sources that Jackson's arm wasn't bleeding badly at all when his journey to the rear started suggests that the artery remained intact at that point. When the general finally reached Dr. McGuire after two falls, though, he had, according to McGuire, quote, lost a large amount of blood and would have bled to death but a tourniquet was immediately applied. For two hours, he was nearly pulseless. Stonewall Jackson's falls during his agonizing journey to the rear resulted in substantial blood loss. By the time he finally reached the ambulance Hunter McGuire had brought up for him, Jackson was cold, clammy, and quite pale. By any criteria, he was in shock. When McGuire saw Jackson, he said, I hope you are not badly hurt, General. I am badly injured, Doctor, Stonewall replied in a calm but feeble voice. I fear I am dying. After a pause, Jackson went on, telling McGuire, I am glad you have come. I think the wound in my shoulder is still bleeding. It was. McGuire described the general's clothes as, quote, saturated with blood. McGuire's description of the blood implies it was arterial, and this kind of blood loss is rapidly fatal unless stopped quickly. At that point, though, McGuire positioned a tourniquet on the wounded left arm, which stopped the bleeding and temporarily saved Jackson's life. It was a wonder that he was alive at all, given what had transpired over the preceding 90 minutes. By 2 a.m. on the morning of May 3rd, Jackson had been at the Corps Field Hospital for nearly three hours, where he had been placed in a separate tent 
warmed and given time to stabilize. His pulse and color improved, and it was now time to examine his wounds under anesthesia. Before anesthetizing the patient with chloroform, McGuire told Jackson that his left arm would probably need to be amputated and asked if, in the event that it was necessary, Jackson wished that it should be done immediately. Yes, certainly, Stonewall replied. Do for me whatever you think is best. After the chloroform was given by inhalation, Jackson was carefully attended to by Dr. McGuire and three other experienced battlefield surgeons. The wound to the right hand wasn't life-threatening, and the ball was extracted through a small incision on the back of the hand, after which the broken fingers were set and splinted. The injuries to the left arm were far more serious. The uppermost of the two bullets had left in its wake shattered muscle, a badly fragmented humerus, which is the large bone of the upper arm, and a partially torn major artery to the arm. The lower of the two balls to hit the left arm had corkscrewed through the forearm before exiting. While this bullet had missed bone, it had destroyed muscle, tendons, and soft tissue. The arm wasn't salvageable and was amputated just below the shoulder. By 3 a.m., the surgery had been completed. All things considered, the care Jackson received at the Corps Hospital was the best possible back in those days. Nine hours later, Jackson was awake and coherent. The visible signs of shock had largely resolved, and his color was much improved. He dispatched his aide and brother-in-law, Joseph Morrison, to Richmond to arrange for Anna to come to him. A message arrived from General Lee, and it was read to him. Lee wrote, I have just received your note informing me that you were wounded. I cannot express my regret at the occurrence. Could I have directed events, I should have chosen for the good of the country to have been disabled in your stead. I congratulate you upon the victory which is due to your skill and strength. Jackson listened, then said, General Lee is very kind, but he should give the praise to God. Stonewall seemed his old self, but he did complain of pain along the left side of his chest. In hindsight, this was an ill omen and a foreshadowing of what was to follow. Because of concern about security in the Confederate rear areas, Robert E. Lee ordered that Stonewall Jackson be moved from the 2nd Corps Hospital to a private home near Guinea Station, the railroad depot south of Fredericksburg. And so Jackson was transported by ambulance some 27 miles to Fairfield, the home of the Chandler family, early on the morning of May 4th. He was lodged in a tidy, whitewashed outbuilding. On Tuesday, May 5th, Jackson seemed much improved, and the ever-vigilant McGuire was very pleased with his patient's progress. The general had no apparent fever and was very lucid, though he slept quite a bit. 
Jackson asked many questions about the recently concluded battle and its participants. His appetite was normal. The next day, his condition was much the same. Early on the morning of, the, of Thursday, the 7th, though, Jackson was awakened from his sleep by nausea, fever, and intense pain in his chest. The pain was intensified by breathing. When the sleep-deprived Dr. McGuire was finally awakened, he was stunned by his patient's dramatic deterioration. Jackson's breathing was visibly labored, his heart rate had noticeably quickened, and he now had such a fever that his sweat had saturated his bedsheets. He had all the signs of what is now known as respiratory failure. Other physicians were called in for consultation, but all reached the same conclusion. The end was near. Meanwhile, Joseph Morrison's assigned task, retrieving his sister Anna, had been complicated by the recent raiding of the Federal Cavalry led by George Stoneman. Morrison himself was nearly captured by the Yankee horsemen, and then Anna was forced to wait until May 7th before she could board a train that would take her and the Jackson's five-and-a-half-month-old daughter, Julia, to Guinea Station. That day, the 7th, after her arrival at Fairfield about noon, when she was finally ushered into her husband's sick room, Anna Jackson was appalled by what she saw. Only eight days earlier, she had seen her man, in her own words, quote, in the full flush of vigorous manhood. I never saw him look so handsome, so happy, or so, or so noble, end quote. Now she saw a flushed, gaunt figure in a morphine stupor, with sunken eyes and a mutilated body. His face bore the deep scratches from hitting tree branches after little sorrel had bolted. He had trouble breathing. Nothing had prepared her for his appearance, which she, she said, quote, wrung my soul with such grief and anguish as it had never before experienced. He had to be roused to speak to her, and though when he saw her, he, quote, expressed much joy and thankfulness, end quote, he then quickly lapsed back into his opiated slumber. She stayed with him for the next several days, leaving only to see her baby. Jackson was now in a semi-conscious state. When awakened, he was able to recognize people in the room, and would speak coherently for a few minutes before slipping into unconsciousness again. He refused to see his infant daughter, Julia, saying, Not yet. Wait till I feel better. He was no better on Friday or Saturday. On Saturday, he began to speak more about the possibility of his own death. He told McGuire, I see from the number of physicians that you think my condition dangerous. But I thank God, if it is his will, that I am ready to go. Still, he wasn't sure he wanted to depart this earthly plane just yet. He told Anna, I do not believe I shall die at this time. I am persuaded the Almighty has yet a work for me to perform. I am not afraid to die. I am willing to abide by the will of my Heavenly Father. He was fading fast. On Saturday night, he asked Anna and her brother to sing hymns. 
Thomas Jonathan Jackson had always desired to die on the Sabbath, and on Sunday, May 10, 1863, he got his wish. That day, when Anna asked him, Do you know the doctors say you must soon be in heaven? He struggled to answer, and Anna, who up until that point had maintained a resolutely cheerful demeanor, now broke down, sobbing. At this, Jackson suddenly snapped out of his drug-induced daze and into focus. He called for Dr. McGuire, who came immediately to his bedside. Doctor, Anna informs me that you have told her that I am to die today. Is it so? McGuire told him it was. Jackson stared at him for a moment, then said, Very good, very good. It is all right. Jackson slept. When he awoke at about 1 p.m., he received a visit from his favorite staff officer, Sandy Pendleton. The two men had had a close, almost father-son relationship. Jackson asked him who was preaching at Army headquarters that day. Pendleton, barely in control of his emotions, told him that Stonewall's chaplain, the Reverend Lacey, was. Then Pendleton, in a wavering voice, said, The whole army is praying for you, General. That included Robert E. Lee, who had attended the services and asked about Jackson's condition. Lacey had told him the case was nearly hopeless. Lee replied, Surely Jackson must recover. God will not take him from us now that we need him so much. After the service, Lee approached Lacey again and said, When a suitable occasion arises, tell him I prayed for him last night, as I never prayed, I believe, for myself. And then Lee turned away, overcome by emotion. Jackson's mind now began to fail as the last of his strength ebbed. Sometimes he would awaken and seem to be clear in his mind. Sometimes he gave orders, as though on the battlefield again. Shortly after 3.15 that afternoon, he awoke in a delirium, crying, A.P. Hill to prepare for action. Pass the infantry to the front rapidly. Soon after, a smile came across his face, and he said, Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Then, without pain or struggle, McGuire said, quote, His spirit passed from the earth to the God who gave it. Some present-day doctors believe that the cause of Stonewall Jackson's death was sepsis, produced by severe infection. Others say it was a pulmonary embolism with blood clots traveling to the lungs. Dr. McGuire's diagnosis, though, was pneumonia, and most present-day physicians seem to agree. We aren't MDs, but the most persuasive account we've come across says that pneumonia, likely stemming from a respiratory infection that was already present at the time of his wounding, was the primary culprit. But there were other contributing factors, including shock, together with the attendant blood loss, and pulmonary contusion from being dropped to the ground when the lungs were likely bruised. 
We may never know the exact cause of Stonewall Jackson's death, but what can be said with certainty is that his wounding by friendly fire on the night of May 2nd started his slide toward death's door. What can also be said with certainty is that Jackson's death stunned the Confederacy. In the spring of 1863, Stonewall was still the South's preeminent military hero, and his death was a blow to Confederate morale, both on the home front and on the front lines. In the army, rebel soldiers accepted the probability that their side had lost an irreplaceable asset. In Richmond, the new, the second, national flag of the Confederacy, the so-called Stainless Banner, had just been adopted, and many people saw it for the first time when it was draped over Jackson's coffin. That certainly set an eerie and depressing note for the debut of that new national flag. Jackson's death in May 1863 could not have come, arguably, at a more critical time for the Army of Northern Virginia and the Confederacy. Things were going from bad to worse out west, so Robert E. Lee and the Army in the east had to continue their string of battlefield victories. Ahead lay the summer campaigning season and Pennsylvania and numerous possibilities. The ultimate effect of Stonewall Jackson's demise is incalculable, in the sense that it falls into the realm of that great historical guessing game, what if. But if you believe that Confederate independence still beckoned in the spring of 1863, then you also have to acknowledge that its achievement clearly rested primarily with Robert E. Lee's army. That being the case, then with Stonewall Jackson's wounding by friendly fire in the dark woods outside Chancellorsville and his death eight days later, Southern hopes suffered a critical loss. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Last Days of Stonewall Jackson, The Mortal Wounding of the Confederacy's Greatest Icon, by Chris Mikowski and Christopher D. White. If Mikowski's and White's names are starting to sound familiar to you, well, that's because this is another offering in the Emerging Civil War series of books. This one, as the title suggests, not only takes a closer look at Jackson's wounding the night of May 2nd and his subsequent death, but the story follows Stonewall's funeral and burial, as well as the strange story of his amputated arm and the restoration of the building where he died, now known as the Stonewall Jackson Shrine. So, if you're interested in the whole nine yards, well, here you go. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And, just to be clear, but we aren't doing away with the podcast website. We're just going to make it so that in the future, all of the membership material will be over on Patreon, right? Right. Okay, so one more announcement for this episode, and it's that we've decided on a time and place for our meetup at Gettysburg on Saturday, June 22nd, 
On that day, we'll meet up with you at 10 a.m. at the Virginia Monument on Seminary Ridge. And then, after a bit of a meet-and-greet, we'll walk Pickett's Charge over to the Union Lines on Cemetery Ridge. Uh, for those so inclined to participate, that is, and physically able to make the hike. We don't mind admitting that we're kind of excited already, not just about being at Gettysburg, but about getting to meet some of you there on the battlefield. Uh, especially since we don't know if two of you will show up or 200. I bet there'll be more than two. <laughs> at any rate, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.